Bible study. Uh, excited to be here again uh, for another week. If you want to go ahead and turn to where we're going to be, Second Corinthians, that's where we are now, and we'll be in chapter 7 today, and we're going to try to start in verse 2, which is where we left off last week, and, and try to continue on to the end of 7, uh, if our time together allows. Uh, this show uh, is the Rick and Bubba Show Studios. That's where uh, we're doing this from. Uh, if you're new to our Bible study, we've been doing this for a decade now. And if you'd like to go back and find some of the old archives, uh, other studies that we've done, we've studied various books of the Bible. We've studied some commentaries, uh, some books. Uh, all that can be found at themanchurch.com. Uh, the, themanchurch.com, you go there, there's a media button there, and you do a drop down. You can either watch the archives or you can listen to them. It's totally uh, up to you, and you can go back through the last decade and grab those. We're also a men's discipleship strategy uh, featuring high challenge. We do these with our events. We do that with our services. We send out speakers and teachers, but that's really nothing new. Men's ministry has been doing that for a long time, and it's been done quite well. But what has always seemed to be lacking, even when we identified the problem, um, not a lot has been done about it, and that's been our focus, and that is the equipping part, the discipleship part, the curriculum. Uh, I've been talking to ministers and pastors all over the country uh, that are doing this. It's well over 1,000 churches now, and the thing we keep getting back is sustainability. Uh, this is the only thing we've ever tried that, that seems to be sustainable, meaning you know the, the drop-off of the men in the small groups is, is a very small percentage, which you normally don't see. The reason why is uh, some of the strategies of the past, and look, I've tried them all, they always end. Uh, and then everybody's like, what do we do next? And nobody knows. And then they, you know, everybody kind of goes back, and then it just falls apart. Our curriculum are 40 weeks. So uh, every year, we can, we, you could literally turn key with us at themanchurch.com, and your men would be set up to be challenged and equipped for the next five years. And, and you'd never have to be asking, what are we going to do next? Uh, so if we can help you in any way, uh, go to themanchurch.com. We do have uh, our conferences, our second year to do that. Got two of them this year. Uh, Birmingham is coming up on February the 16th and the 17th. There's still seats available for that. Find them at themanchurch.com. So the Birmingham stop will be at Sanford University, the Wright Center. Uh, it'll be Robbie Gallaty. Uh, it will be uh, Rich Wingo, Andy Blanks, and I will be speaking twice in Birmingham, Friday night and Saturday, to end it. Uh, and then Chuck Hooten is leading worship. Outstanding uh, group of musicians and singers are coming again this year, and last year just it just blew us away. And, and we're excited about this year. We've added a second conference, uh, March 8th and 9th. Starville, Mississippi, there might be 40 tickets left to that one. It's a smaller room. Uh, we've got Granger Smith, uh, James Spann, Scott Dawson, Andy Blanks, and I will be speaking there, Chuck Hooten doing worship. If you're wanting to go to Starville, I mean, I'm, it's down to like 40 tickets, okay, so that are still available. Birmingham is a bigger room, so uh, there's about 100 and so tickets available there. So, uh, so you can grab those at themanchurch.com, and we'll see you in Birmingham, Lord willing, uh, next week. And then uh, if not, we'll see you in Startable in March. So let's open up with a word of prayer, and uh, let's jump into 2 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 2. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to unpack your holy word. Thank you for the Holy Spirit and the discernment uh, that, uh, that he provides. Thank you, Lord, for your son, Jesus. Uh, who who took on your wrath so we wouldn't have to if we choose to repent uh, and can be justified and made fully righteous by him so we can come back into uh, your presence, Father. Uh, help us today to overcome our, our shortcomings, to overcome uh, our, our flawedness, the sin nature that is still with us. Lord, help us to feed the Spirit today to win the battle 
of the flesh versus the spirit. As you have laid out in your holy word, they are opposed to each other. And the one we feed is the one that wins. May we feed the spirit today. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so uh, we know that when we left off last week, uh, what Paul was doing, and, and he was he was really kind of laying down straightforward, you know, how the, how we should... Um, how we should be living our lives. He's talking to those that have have been redeemed, and he's saying, here's the things you should do, here's the things you shouldn't do. There were some incredible takeaways from last week. Now, he's going to shift a little bit. It's almost like this is a fascinating letter the more I keep learning about it. He's going to take a pause right now, and and he's going to seem, he seems to drift back to the fact that he's been personally maligned. He, he has people in Corinth that uh, that are misrepresenting him, uh, that oppose him, um, and and for some something has happened that that has forced this problem back into his mind, and he's going to go back to it. He's going to start talking about it again. There's a lot of theories on what might have done this. It, it might be that he was on his way back to Corinth uh, through Philippi, and so he's kind of uh, in Thessalonica, and he's starting to think about I'm about to be back there again, and this has brought this back. Uh, he's thinking about you know maybe what he'd have to deal with when he arrived there. Uh, one thing we do know is that Titus was on his way. Paul has already told us that. Uh, so he's going to shift from doctrine teaching, which is what we had last week, and he's going to shift to these more personal attacks, some of his old enemies, you know, the, the Jewish members uh, of the church that, that oppose Paul. Um, then, of course, you've got some of the, um, uh, the pagan Greeks that oppose Paul. Uh, all that, as a matter of fact, now this Jewish sect that has a leader— We'll talk about him in a minute. Uh, you remember he's been dealing with them since Acts 15, you know, the Jerusalem Council. And if you remember that when we studied the Book of Acts, and if you remember, Paul couldn't get it calmed down, Peter couldn't get it calmed down, and then they sent for James, and it says nobody opposed James. So Paul didn't fare well at the Jerusalem Council, and these people have been dogging him ever since. So uh, he's going to start out with the first couple couple of verses. Uh, two through the first part of four, and really he's going to defend himself again. You know, we, we saw this early on, and then we got away from it. We got into doctrine, and now something has got him back. You ever had that happen in your life? You've kind of moved off something, and something triggers it, and you're like, well, now I'm back talking about that again. Um, and, and so this is what's happened, and we don't know if it's Titus is coming to him. We're going to find out that Titus does get back. You know, if you remember, he wasn't sure what happened to Titus. They were trying to meet, and it didn't work out. He, he didn't even know whether Titus might have gotten robbed or might have gotten shipwrecked at sea. He didn't know what happened, and and he was concerned about that. So anyway, for whatever reason, you know, the last thing that he talked to the, the people at Corinth, he told them that, that if there was any problem between them and him, it, it was not that his heart wasn't open to them. It's their hearts aren't open to him. You remember him talking about that? And, and so he, he, he rolls through all that, and then he gets down to the end, and he says you know, that, he, that, they, that we need to cleanse ourselves from every defilement uh, and spirit, bringing holy, holiness to completion in the fear of God. What he's trying to say, if we're ever going to resolve this, we have both got to get right with God. You, you ever been in this world? I have problems in my life, and until the person gets right with God that I have a problem with, it's never going to be resolved. The only hope to get these things resolved is that both parties are right with God. If somebody's not right with God, you're really kind of walking uphill because they're never going to see it the way you do, or if you're out of line, 
with your faith and they and they and they're right if if you're not going to say if you really look at it I talk about this in marriage all the time if if you take your marriage young young people in here that haven't been married yet and for those of you that maybe you're still uh, new to marriage, it, it, there's one piece of advice that I would give the those. First of all, we learned last week: don't marry people that aren't of the faith. It's a huge mistake. That's never going to be okay. Okay, you're constantly going to be hoping they will be redeemed so y'all can get on the same page. So let's say that you married the way you're supposed to, two people of the faith. You take Jesus and you put Jesus as as head of the house. Then, like that's a triangle. He's the top of the triangle, and then. You and your wife are down here at the, at the at the two corners of the of the triangle, and as you both pursue Christ to get right with Him, you meet at His feet. And so, what happens if both people are right with Christ? What happens? We're in an argument; it's not going well, and then eventually we run into Jesus, and it gets resolved. I, I liken Jesus like you. Do you remember taking your kids to theme parks, or some of you ever been to theme parks? And they used to put you on those cars you'd ride, and they put that metal right down the middle of the road. So if the kid can't drive right, it hits that metal and puts the puts the car back in the middle of the road. That's Jesus, uh, in in the life of the followers of Christ. Do we get in arguments? We do. Do we have disagreements? Yes. What resolves them? Jesus. Eventually, one of us says, "Because of Jesus, I shouldn't be treating you the way I am. I should apologize. I should repent. I should stop doing this." But if you don't have that, then there's no guarantee you can ever resolve anything. And that's what Paul's trying to tell those that oppose him. We, you, you got to get right with Christ, as I am right with Christ, or we'll never work this out. So now he he pleads for that in verse two, and he's talking about him and those that have been teaching them. Uh, make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. So he's saying, make room in your hearts for us. I told you that we've made room in our hearts for you, and he's talking about uh, he and Apollos, and he's he's talking about Peter, he's talking about him, he, he's talking about all those that are coming to Corinth and, and are part of of, uh, of the disciples um, are now the apostles, and um, he goes on to say we haven't we haven't wronged anyone we we don't we don't really understand why these accusations are being made against us we can't put a finger on it because we haven't done anything wrong. Have you ever been had people oppose you, and you really don't even know why they oppose you? You can't really figure out uh, what what was wrong, and you keep saying, "Can you communicate to me exactly what I did that was wrong?" and and make a case. And sometimes people can make a a case, and you go, "Oh, well, I I didn't know that you." The thing that makes me furious is when somebody's mad at me and they won't take it on. I cannot stand passive aggressive people. Just say what's on your mind. And then we'll usually be able to get it resolved. But these little snide comments that I'm supposed to figure out what you want to talk about or figure out what's bothering you, uh, why don't you tell me what's bothering you? What a concept. Why don't you just say it? Uh, and I can handle it, and then maybe we can work it out. I may explain it, or I may go, wow, you know what? I didn't think about it. I guess I did mess up. I'm sorry. But I can't figure it out with snide comments and silent treatments. That, that just doesn't work for me. Because uh, I don't know what's going on, and so we can't start resolution. Uh, and so that's what he's saying is, I'd like a little more clarity on exactly what y'all are upset about, because I'm 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 looking at how we handled this, and you're going to see in a minute he's really going to be uh, uh, be vindicated in all this. We've wronged no one, we've corrupted no one, we've taken advantage of no one. I don't know what y'all are mad about. Okay, so now three. 
He says, I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. And here's what he's saying is, I'm not defending myself just for the sake of defending myself. I'm not doing it also, let me clarify even more, I'm not doing this to bring charges against you. Now, now, that's also teaching us. What is our real motivation when we're trying to, to seek resolution to a conflict? Is it to seek resolution for us all to be right with God, or is it trying to get enough information where I can now tell you you're wrong? Am I trying to win an argument, or am I trying to be right with God? Am I trying to resolve this, or am I trying to win an argument? And what Paul is saying is, I'm not trying to win an argument. I'm not trying to say you're wrong, I'm right. I just want this resolved. My, my motivation is, is not even defending myself. Uh, all that was in my heart for you is love. And he says this, which this is crucial, because there's no telling what's going to happen to him with these people that oppose him. See, what you're thinking about right now, somebody may be pouting or somebody's being mean to you or someone's ignoring you, Paul had a legitimate concern that they might kill him. So what he's saying is, I have nothing but love in my heart for y'all, whatever y'all do to me. So know that. And I'm not doing anything for any other reason than for us to get this resolved. Can we say that when dealing with resolution? Are we just wanting to be right? Or do we want to be right with God? Do we want to handle everything the right way? Or do we just want to win? Do we want to be the one that said, I was right in the argument and you were wrong? I will tell you, most of the arguments I've been in in my life, rare is the one that I'm 100% right. Rare is the one that I'm 100% pure in all this. Those are rare. Most of the time, I'm flawed at some, at some level in this too, and let's all work it out. Okay? And uh, so Paul is making that very clear. It is not to elevate himself or to be, de- declared, be declared right. I think sometimes we got to be careful if our motivation is we always have to be right. And, uh, and then he says in verse 4, I'm acting with great boldness. Now, I would underline that because this is an important thing to notice. Towards you, I have great pride in you. Uh, I am filled with comfort in all our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. He does not apologize for being bold. Catch that. There's nothing wrong with being bold. There's nothing wrong with just pointing something out straightforward when there's a problem. It's the motivation, not the style. What's the motivation for what he And he's clarified his motivation. Notice he clarified his motivation before he was bold. Take a note of that. That's wise counsel. Okay? Uh, even, even in recent days, I've had to have some difficult conversations. But what I always do with difficult conversations is I say, let me tell you my motivation before we ever start down this road. Now, once you know my motivation, I'm going to go ahead and cut to the chase. Because that's what I prefer. I, that's how I want to be treated. I don't like passive-aggressive people. I don't like beating around the bush. I want to get to it so we can start resolving it, okay? And so he wants them to know that he was bold in facing them, but he wants them to know, too, and this is always important, he's giving his resume saying, have I ever been, have I ever treated you people poorly? Have I, have, I go around bragging on you all all the time. He said, I, I boast about you. When I'm not with you, I don't, I don't run you down when I'm not around. I tell people how much I love you. And, and he says, uh, I'm very frank to your face, but what I didn't do 
is come to your face and act like I was okay with what you're doing, then run off and tell everybody you're wrong. I told you what I thought was going on in the church that was wrong, and I said it to your face. I didn't tell you one thing and then go tell other people something else. I've been consistent there, and I've been consistent when I'm away from you. Can we say that? He's talking about integrity. I I will never go talk behind your back. If I think there's a problem, I'll tell you directly because I don't want to be accused of gossiping about you and, and coming up and patronizing you, then going off and telling everybody how bad you are. I'm sure that's never going on. Uh, so so he, he's, he's saying this is how things should be handled. And then he says at the last part of four, he defends himself. He said, in all affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. Paul defends himself saying, I know that what I said is going to bring me problems, but what I said was accurate, so I'm good. It's okay to, 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 to face persecution. It's okay for people to get upset with us as long as what we said was right and true. If somebody gets upset with us about telling the truth, then there's nothing we can do about that. Now, we don't have to be jerks about it. We Again, we, we always communicate why we're doing it, we're not trying to make somebody look bad. We're not trying to elevate ourselves. We're just standing up for what's right. You know, if you go to, you know, someone and say, I think the way you, I'm just using this as an example. Um, I think the way you're acting brother, and I'm telling you this for your own good, cause it may be a blind spot in your life. And, and, you, and please tell me if you see things in my life that need to be adjusted, I've given you the right to speak into my life. And, and you've given me the right to speak into yours, and I think your behavior about this, around this woman you're not married to at work is inappropriate. And then if, that, if what you're saying you can point to that being accurate, then you can go, now if that makes you mad, I, that's okay uh, because what I just said was true. Right. And it was true for your own good. I said that because I truly don't want you to be seen by people as compromising the gospel and I don't want your wife to be compromised by the way you acted. And that's why I said it. I hope you have those kind of friends. If you don't, you're in a dangerous world. Uh, so Paul says, so even if this makes you come after me, I will still be overflowing with joy because what I did, I did for what was right, not to be liked by you. And, and I truly love you by telling you the truth. And if you won't tell me the truth, you don't really love me. And I'm overflowing. Now, this doesn't mean that Paul is promoting a critical spirit. Please hear that. I've been around those people before. They have a critical spirit, meaning they're critical of everything. And, and it gets to the point that you don't even listen to them anymore because you can't ever make them happy. They, they, they think you do everything wrong. And so the critical spirit people don't really help me. But when Paul's laying out that I communicated where I was coming from, you know my motivation for doing it. I'm always bragging on you. I don't talk behind your back. You know that I love you. So if if I handled this correctly in the Holy Spirit, I'm not under conviction that I've done it wrong. So if you think I'm wrong, I'm still good because I know what I did was right. Make sense? So he says, my joy is not affected by how you respond. My joy is still there because I know I said what needed to be said. All right, so here we go to verse 5. For even when we came into Macedonia, 
Our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. Now, what is he talking about? Does anybody remember chapter 2, verse 13? Make a note, note of that. He's going back. See, something has prompted Paul to start thinking about all this again. So he goes back to chapter 2, verse 13, and this is when Paul was forced out of Ephesus. He went to Troas on his way to Macedonia, likely by sea. Uh, there's all kinds of perils at sea. You know what was more dangerous than the sea for these guys when they were traveling? The roads. Robbers around every turn. I mean, they had all kinds of issues. Um, and he was waiting uh, on Titus, if you remember, and he got to Philippi, and Titus was not there. But, uh, but he said that his flesh had no rest for worrying about that, and he said it was, very di- it was a difficult time for him, and he actually uh, you know, fell into fear, and he was worried about Titus that something had happened to him. He said, if you remember, that was a very unpleasant time for me. There was a lot of uncertainty. There was a lot of persecution. I didn't know what happened to Titus, and, 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 and it even brought so much concern and anxiety to me that I couldn't get comfortable and I could not be at peace because I didn't know what had happened to Titus and I knew that the opposition against me and him was 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 high and I was concerned that maybe they had killed him, maybe he was lost at sea, and this was difficult. And guess what happens in verse 6? But God. One of these but God statements. So so look at 6. This, this is, and you know, we need to do a whole maybe a devotion on but God, don't we? Look at 6. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Just when I thought there was no hope for Titus, God brought him to me. He, he made it. And, and think about that. I, I don't want you to miss this because I tell people all the time they're going through difficult difficulty. I say God is near to the brokenhearted. God is near to the downcast. And you know what Paul says? Yes, he is. When I was at my breaking point, when I was overwhelmed by anxiety and fear and concern, Titus knocked on the door. God brought him to me at my breaking point. And, and, and now he goes further. Not only did God bring Titus to him, look what happens next. Paul is concerned that he has stirred up trouble at Corinth, that everybody's mad at him, that everybody to the point they may kill him, that it's just total chaos there. I think the letter I sent has really, really stirred everybody up. So much so, I'm delaying my trip to Corinth. He's wanting an update for Titus because Titus has been there. Have you, have you ever been waiting on an update from somebody? You, you think there's this problem and somebody said, hey, let me go check on it. I'll call you this afternoon. And you're just sitting there going, where's the call? And it never comes in. And you're like, where's, what's the update? Well, Paul gets his update, and listen to this. Titus had good news, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. You ever had that moment? You know what Titus said? Oh, no, no, the letter actually was effective. What? I I thought they were all getting ready to kill me. And Titus says, oh, no, no, no. Believe it or not, he says, many at Corinth heard what you said. They're earnest to see you. They love you. They're praising you. 
They have not lost their love for you. And actually, what you pointed out, you pointed out so well, and they could not deny it. They're mourning that you had to be put in that position. They're mourning about the opposition you now face. They don't like what has happened to you because you told the truth, and most of them are repenting. Wow. Does that feel good? Because let's face it, because of the adversary and because of our flesh, even when we do it right, there's always that doubt in our flesh, and it, man, I wonder if I messed that up. You know, we learned this letter, a lot of this letter is, he, he's, does he have regret that he sent that letter? Did the last visit not go well? Was it not effective? Is all he has done is caused more grief for himself? Imagine you doing something as bold as Paul did it, as straightforward as Paul did it. You're grieving over the fact that you still have opposition. You think, have you ever thought to yourself when you did something you needed to do, but there's people that are also in the mix that don't like you, so they're going to try to turn everybody against you? And you're like, I, I can't even get there to defend myself. I'm, now I'm firing off this letter so I can defend myself, but when are they going to read it? And so before he could worry about that any longer, Titus came back and said, look, I was there, and let me tell you what's going on. You, they're longing to see you. They're mourning the difficulty you've been through. They have zeal for you. They're fired up about being discipled by you. And, and, and when I heard that, when I heard that, I rejoiced still more. I couldn't believe how good the news was. Doesn't it feel good for you to find out that people go, oh, we're with you. We're not against you. Some people are still against you, but we're not. And Paul heard that. And then look what happened next. For even if I made you, this is verse 8, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it. What does that mean? I don't regret it now, but I did before I got this news. I, my feelings have changed about this. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. What is he saying? It convicted you. I know it made you feel bad. You didn't like me pointing this stuff out. And I kind of regretted sending it. I thought maybe I was too harsh. But now I don't regret it. Because you know what I found out? It was effective. Is there any better feeling for someone to say, I'm going to tell you when I talk about the manchurch.com, you know, when God gave us this strategy, we put together these curriculum, all of this stuff, and, and, we, and then it just goes out. And you go, I don't. It's a lot like what I do for a living. See, I'm not, I'm not a musician, and I'm not a stand-up comedian. I mean, I've done stand-up before. But when you do those things, you get immediate response. You know whether it's working or it's not. In radio, you don't. You just sit here and talk to this microphone in this room with some guys, and you don't know what people. You, I've had, I've said things to this microphone, and it'd be two weeks later. Somebody said, "Let me tell you something." I nearly ran off the road laughing at that. I was like, "I wish I'd have known that two weeks ago." I didn't know whether that really worked or not, and so we don't get instant feedback. Well, neither did Paul. He doesn't get instant feedback. It takes time, so he didn't know how it's going. So he started kind of regretting it. Maybe I didn't do that right. And now, Titus comes back and says, "Oh no, no, this has been very effective." When these, when these pastors, I talked to a pastor, it's been uh, about a month ago now, and for him to say, oh, the curriculum, incredibly effective. Changing the dynamic of our church. Never had anything we've done in men's ministry even close to it. Well, that feels great. Oh, okay, so, so what we thought 
and what we felt like God was telling us to do, you're, you're now affirming that, and you're letting us know, oh, yeah, that is very effective. Keep it coming. It feels great. And so Paul is getting that. His letter was actually effective, and people there love him, and people want him to come and visit, and people have zeal for him, and, and people are apologetic that their behavior caused him this kind of anguish. And, uh, and now he says, I'm sorry I had to grieve you, but it was only for a while because you, you, it, ca- it caused you to repent. Now, I know that some of us, if, you, if you've ever had children, you've experienced this. Let me tell all of you right out there right now, if God himself disciplines his children and it hurts for a little while, but it's for our own good, where do we get off saying that we're not going to grieve our children and make them uncomfortable for their own good? Amen. And when we don't, it don't do them any good. Amen. It may grieve them for a little while, but boy, it's, it, it is one of the, the acts of love. When you love your kids enough or you love people enough to be willing to grieve them if it'll help them. Because just for a little while. So he said, uh, I'm glad to hear that's how it went. Then he goes on to nine. And it is, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved. Now, that's key. I don't like that it grieved you. I wish it didn't have to go that way. You, you ever discipline one of your kids and tell them, I wish we didn't have to do this. But it must be done. It's for your own good. I wouldn't love you if I wasn't willing to do this. I wish I didn't have to do this. I wish this wasn't the way it has to be. I've heard that from, I know that from God, and I don't, I don't like the fact, I wish I could change the truth that God allows pain and suffering for many reasons, but one of them is because it works. It always gets our attention. We start looking for him when we're down and out. Maybe we should start looking for him when we're joyful, and maybe we wouldn't have to be put in that position. So, so here, here is Paul saying, I get it. Uh, I'm not happy that you were grieved, but here's what I am rejoicing, because you were grieved into repenting. Somebody say amen to that. I, I'm, I'm actually happy that that was the end result, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through this. Now, this is good, good, good stuff. I know we don't like to hear this, but this is really, really good stuff, Okay. He, he says, look, I, I, I know that this has brought you to repentance. I know that Titus came here and gave me the news, that the letter was rough, uh, and, and, and I hate that, but many of you heard it and it grieved you for a little while, but I understand that you still love me. I understand that many of you got it. It has led you into repentance, and if this grief brought you to repentance, then I'm glad that it it, it was it, that I did it in a way that it grieved you. Think about remember we studied the Revelation. Does anybody remember going through the Revelation? It was a while back that we're at this part because it was already back in, in in Revelation two, so that's been almost a year ago. We were in Revelation two, but do you remember the seven letters to the churches? Do you remember what Paul just did? Do you remember Jesus talking to the church at Ephesus? And he patted them on the back in the beginning because he didn't want to come across as not seeing the things they were doing right. But then what did he say? But I have this against you. 
You think everybody didn't, when, when that letter was being read, and they're like, hey, we're getting congratulated by Jesus. Look at this letter Paul sent us. But what do you think the room was like when all of a sudden the person reading it said, but Jesus says he has this against us. This we're not doing well. Do you think it got everybody's attention? Well, Paul basically did the same thing. He said, look, I got a lot to compliment you, you about. I love you. But I have this against you. And it worked. Are, are you willing to do the same thing? Am I willing to do the same thing? To tell the people that we love, you are doing a lot of things right. You know, my, my dad, who just went into glory, I think what made him a tremendous leader and a tremendous coach, flawed man, but when it comes to leadership and a coach, he was one of the best there's ever been. And the reason why is his encouragement and his correction, they were on equal pillars. He was never the guy that you only heard what you were doing wrong, and if he said nothing, assume you're doing it right. He was not that guy. He was just as loud, just as gregarious, just as encouraging when you were doing it right as he could be fearful when he was correcting. He, he pulled no punches on correction, but you know what else? He also celebrated when you were doing it right. He, he put it on equal pillars, and you know what? That's why people who even got corrected would run through a wall for him because they knew that he loved them. And they remembered when he patted them on the back and said, good job. He, they remembered that too. And if, they were, if, you, if you do that, then when you get ready to say something that's not so good, people still go, I think you have my best interests. It's, I, th I think you're doing this for my own good because I saw how you encouraged me when I did it right. So it's not like you don't, you don't love me. So that's what Paul was trying to say, and I hope that we are listening to this. But also another thing that we should not take away, if you're not willing to grieve people, you could be standing in the way of their repentance because you won't tell them the truth. So they, you, now think about, remember, remember uh, we referenced this a, a, a while back in, uh, in Ezekiel, I think it's chapter... Is it chapter 18 or is it chapter 3, verse 18? I, it's something. When, when he says, if you correct someone and they don't listen, and he's even talking about people like Paul's dealing with that, that are part of, that, that, of course, the church wasn't there, but people who were his people in the Old Testament that were children of the covenant. If you see them in sin and you correct them and they don't listen, then your blood, their blood's not on your hands. But now listen to this. This is, this, is, this is key. But if you see someone in sin and you don't correct them and they never correct it, their blood's going to be on your hands. I'm going to hold you accountable for that. So Paul did not want to be held accountable for seeing behavior in the church that shouldn't be going on and just refused to deal with it because he just wanted to get along. He didn't want anybody to be mad at him. And I, but we always have to keep in mind, Paul's grieved by the fact he has to do this. Now, be careful. And um, my pastor even said this to me, uh, and, and, I, and I have not forgot it. He said, church discipline is absolutely necessary, but it's nauseating. Anybody that enjoys that, there's something wrong with them. It shouldn't be enjoyable. And that's the thing. I was just talking with uh, uh, family, and they said, 
I noticed that you'll have difficult conversations with people. You must enjoy that. I said, oh, no, 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 no. That's, that's totally wrong. I don't enjoy it at all. I'm nauseated by it. I dread it. I'm just willing to do it. But I don't enjoy it. I'm just willing to do it. Because I love people enough to tell them the truth. And I'm thankful for people who are willing to do it with me. The ones who are not don't really love me. They just maybe like being around me or something. Um, but they don't love me. So so Paul is making that clear. And look at verse 10. He's he, This is something. I, I've got this underlined, and I want you all to underline this one. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief just produces death. Now, how many? How unpopular is verse ten a? For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. That's a very unpopular statement, but it sure is true. You know what he's saying? No apology needed. I lamented over this letter. I've owned it. But now I can let that go because it has been confirmed by God through Titus that I really have nothing to apologize for and I have nothing to regret because this remorse that I brought on this church has actually led to true repentance. Now, what does he mean without regret? Because if we aren't truly turning from our sin, then we can't. We don't really experience a saving repentance because there's still something left. We didn't quite deal with it. We still had the altars in the high places. We dealt with what was in front of us, but we didn't fully repent. We hung on to a little bit of sin. But Paul said, I've grieved y'all so much, or God has grieved you through my letter, that it has grieved you to the point that you dealt with everything you needed to deal with. You repented of everything, not just some things. A lot of us are willing to repent of some things, but we're not willing to repent of all things. Some sin we still like, and we don't want to repent of it. And he says, well, see, that's not repentance without regret. And that's not repentance that what produces salvation. That's you cutting deals with God. There's some things I'll stop doing, but not all things. And God is looking, going, so you, you mean to tell me you'll hang on to anything that opposes me? Well, surely some of this only opposes you a little bit. No, he, he is holy, 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 and all of it blasphemes him. He hates sin. It comes out next weekend, the brand-new devotional, Sin always matters, and the whole devotional is about how much God hates sin. Now, there's a lot of wonderful news in there about how he will, he's allowed us to be right with him, so we didn't leave that part out. It's, it's basically a, a devotional about the power of grace but the severity of sin. And Paul says this grief has produced a true repentance that had no regret, which leads to salvation. Amen. So sometimes, in order for someone to repent, they have to be convicted first, and sometimes conviction comes through people speaking into your life. 
You know, when, when Peter is standing up there at Pentecost, his answer to the people is repent. But he sure did have to give the message first. The Holy Spirit convicted him, but Peter had to be obedient to say what God said to say. Stephen, when he gets stoned, that's an ugly message. They are very upset about him telling them, hey, you killed Messiah, by the way. And no one can be redeemed by any other name on heaven and earth than through Jesus. And y'all killed him. Not a popular message. Got him stoned. But Paul never forgot what he saw. And he became a hoss for the church. And he was holding the jackets where everybody could stone Stephen and throw harder. But he never forgot that, and he told us he never forgot it. So now let's get to verse 11. So Paul's dealt with all that, and now he gets to 11, and he, 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 he wants to talk about revival, okay? For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves without indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment, at every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. Now, see, he's saying in this here, he said, here's what we saw when y'all were convicted and you repented. We see a new caution concerning sin. We see, write this down, this is, this is a new phrase I learned this week from John Phillips, a holy sorrow. You care about holiness now, and you're sorrowful when you're doing things that aren't holy. You have a holy sorrow. It's a big deal to you. Sin has become a bigger deal to you because of this. There's a new confession there's a new concern. There's a new conviction. There's a new compulsion. There's a new commitment. There's a new conscience. There's a new condemnation. Look at the list. Just look at the list when he says that. He said, you, you, you do not want to be at odds with God. You, you, you now fear God. You actually long to have zeal for God. You understand what punishment comes to those who will not repent, and you've proven yourself innocent in the matter. He sees all these things coming from simple repentance that was brought on by making them grieve over their sin. Then he gets into the reason for the letter. Look at 12. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. So now we know this. There's a lot of talk. There's really only two options here when he's talking about, look, I didn't just send the letter for the one thing that was going on. It was for everybody. So don't think I was just trying to put somebody in, in, in the spotlight, and they're saying it's either the guy from 1 Corinthians 5 that was in the, the horrible, even pagans don't do sexual sin about having sex with his new stepmom, uh, he, he, it's either that guy or it's the leader of the opposition there, the Jews who are against Paul. No one knows which one it is, but they say it's one of these two. And what he's saying is, I didn't just send it to point that out. I sent it so everybody would examine themselves. And, uh, and he said, so it, and I also, it wasn't just to point out what suffering this sin had, had, had caused. The primary reason, and this is what we got to understand, and most of the Bible is about this. To the lost, the Bible's quite simple. Repent. Here's the gospel. 
The rest of it is to those of us who've already been justified in what we're supposed to do and not do. He said, I wrote this to the saints. I didn't just write it to the sinner. I wrote it to the entire church because the church needs to be pure. This was for you guys to remember how you're supposed to be living, to correct you. Everybody, not just these guys or that guy. It was to wake up the church. The whole church needed revival. Hello? So we can also take away something here, can't we? This will be an unpopular unpopular statement. Not in this room, because let's face it, y'all are all in. If y'all didn't like the way I teach, y'all wouldn't keep coming back. So, you know, some of you that are here for the first time, you may not come back. But, but we can also take away what? If you want revival to come to the church, this is how you ought to preach. Apparently, right? Not a bunch of feel-goodism, not a bunch of inch deep, mile wide, and you go home, you know, we, you, you know one thing that, that, that we should do, yeah, let's all feel good, you're good, I'm good, we're all good. God loves us just like we are. No, God loves those who repent. His love is available to all. But if you don't repent, God hates you. Because you're still in sin. And he hates sin. Read Psalms chapter 5. You'll, like, you'll think, where was that? We don't read this much in the Bible where he says, I know this is, I know God. He's talking to God. I know you hate evildoers. My thought, he loves sinners. Well, the Bible says he hates evildoers. He loves the repentant. He loves those who repent. He loves those that turn from sin. And his love is available to those that are in sin, all who repent. But to say that God's good with your relationship with him, if you haven't repented, that's just not biblically true because of his character. And we probably should, should preach that. Like I said before, you know, his, his love and his grace and his wrath, they're equal pillars. And I don't think you understand one without understanding the other. And so we probably should preach a call to repentance, and we probably should preach what God considers sin and what he doesn't consider sin, as opposed to giving ourselves some sort of holy TED Talk about some kind of life application and how we can be our best us, like God's our life coach or something. Okay? Because Paul just said this worked. Do y'all think the Apostle Paul is an example of how we should preach? I think probably. So uh, so he says that. It was to wake up the church. And then he says the, res the results speak for themselves. Don't you love when Paul does this? 13 through 15. Therefore we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boast I, I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have perfect confidence in you. You think that felt good for them to hear that from their teacher? Well, here's what he's saying. We're comforted. 
by this news. I was affirmed that I was right about you. I told Titus that I believed that you, that you would repent, and you have. I told him that I believed that, that y'all would understand the correction, and you have. Titus is, is thrilled. And, and how about, do you love that? I told him y'all would come through, and y'all didn't put me to shame. I believed in you. I knew that we had some things going on there that shouldn't be going on, but I believed you would correct them. If they were just pointed out, and if I made my case, you would agree with me because I think you are my, you, I did point you to the gospel. Jesus did redeem you, and now you're being sanctified. And I believe if Titus goes there and he, and he sees what I pointed out, y'all are going to tell him, you agree with me, you're going to repent. I did get, I did at one time think maybe I was too harsh, but you know what? All you have done is just completely confirm everything I told Titus about you. And I love that. And he says, this makes Titus love you all the more. Isn't that true? It's one thing for somebody to tell you about somebody, but what about when you go meet them and they really are everything somebody said? Don't you love them more than when the, the person just told you about it, when you actually experienced it? He said, Titus loves, loves y'all. He, he's, he's selling. He can't believe it. The revival that has taken place. They won the heart of Titus. Not only did Paul love them, now Titus does. He's like, boy, you're right about the Corinthians. Man, they got they, and they had a lot of spiritual gifts in that church. But what he was concerned about is what all the people who opposed him had they had more influence over the the ones who loved him than he could. And you know what he found out? They couldn't change them. They couldn't turn them. Paul had too much integrity. And so he says, um, we are comforted by this. Now, don't miss this. We rejoice still the more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boast I made about, made to him about you, I was not put to shame. You came through. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true, and his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all. So what impressed Titus the most? They said, we have to be obedient. We're being disobedient. And you corrected it. And that really impressed him. What does Jesus say about those who love him? Those who love him will obey him. John 14, 15, if you want to make that note. And is there anything that feels better than verse 16? I do love the one right before that, though, uh, 15b. <laughs> How you received him with fear and trembling. Uh-oh, Paul sent his guy down here. And Paul means business. Here comes the representative. And when they saw you, they, they had fear and they were trembling. And they repented. But then this. See, this is that this one talking about the, the encouragement with the correction. you got to have both. So Paul has corrected them, and apparently pretty harshly. But the fact that they listened, he now says what? I knew you'd come through. How good does that feel? I had all the faith in the world in you. We needed, we, I, we needed you to make a play right here. I knew you would. That's why I put it in. I knew you'd come through. What a great feeling that must have been for the Corinthians that still loved Paul. Their teacher said, I had all the confidence this would be okay. 
and you proved me right. So let me ask you this. All Paul is is a representative of Jesus. That's all he is. He's an ambassador for Christ. And this is what I took away from the message. A lot of, a lot of application, and, and it really helped me because sometimes I, too, think, am I being too harsh? And certainly there's been times I have been. I don't always do it right. But, but it really helped on how to approach things. And some of the ways that we're approaching things, even with what we're doing with our curriculum and stuff, is right. And the fruit proves that, not, not anything else. If you want to know if something's been done right, the fruit will tell you. And, um, but on this at the end, I pictured verse 16 being Jesus. My Lord, who redeemed me. Am I living my life that Jesus would say, I rejoice because I have perfect confidence in you? You won't betray me. You won't turn on me. You won't deny me. Hey, Rick, I have perfect confidence in you. Now you put your name there. Can Jesus look at, at you and me, not just you, me, put your name there and say, hey, I have perfect confidence that you'll never deny me. We're going to make mistakes, guys. We're going to mess up. But you know what Jesus would say? I have perfect confidence you'll repent. I have perfect confidence that you'll, you, you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And you'll respond. You won't ignore it. I have perfect confidence. I know that you're not going to be perfect until I can glorify you. But through the sanctification process, when you even mess up like these people have, when you remember what I said, I have perfect confidence you'll correct it. I believe in you. And I trust you with the gospel. Can Jesus trust us with it? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for the message. Thank you for the opportunity to just sit here freely and just study your holy word. Thank you for Paul. Thank you for Titus. Thank you for the example. Lord, I pray that uh, your church will repent. I pray for revival to come to your church. And I know around the world, Lord, there is revival that is never ending. But the Western church has is, is got problems. Not in every church, not in every situation, but overall it's just, and, and I pray you'll bring revival. I pray you'll provide the teachers and the preachers that will say exactly what you said to say. And it'll grieve us. And it'll, it'll, it'll convict us. But godly grief is a good thing. And ultimately it will lead to a pure repentance that leads to true salvation. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Thanks for being with us.